Good to see you. Yeah. Hi, Mike. First first three-time guest on Ranching Reboot. How's that make you feel? All right, Brian. <laughs> I'm in uh, I'm in Great Falls, Montana. Oh, nice. Is the wind blowing up there today? It's cool. It's not cold, but it's cool. I'm going to get, you know, I mean, what is tomorrow? A high of 37, I think. Or is it Saturday? Saturday's a high of 37. So it's going to get lots colder here. I think we've got some 30s, uh, 30s for lows coming next week. Uh, well, it's kind of a neat day today because we're, we're dropping off our, uh, we sold our mobile slaughter unit that we, that we killed in for seven years. And it is now, in, now it's the property of the Montana Farmers Union. Uh, oh, nice. And they're having their convention here. Uh, and the mobile unit's pulling in and about right now. It's pulling Big trip from St. Francis. <laughs> so uh, what are you doing for slaughter now? You still, uh, what do you have now? We, we built a, a, a slaughter floor in the building where the mobile slaughter unit was housed. So it's a steel building but it was constructed to where the mobile unit could be inside. And then as we, you know, became more and more confident that everything was going to be okay, we, we sold the mobile unit and then, and then put up a, a kill floor. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. We added a, a we added a cooler on that'll, that'll hold 30 head per day kill. So we got a, we got a drip cooler for 30 cattle and another cooler with 40 head capacity and then we just transfer out of there to Colorado Springs. So that's that's kind of a capacity improvement for you, yeah? Yeah, but we've not we haven't got to the capacity yet. Uh we you know, but it's it's set up to to grow. So we, we got yeah that's how you do it. Build for what you want, not for what you have. That's right. Is is business pretty good for you? Things things are okay. It's it, things are okay, but boy it isn't near near as good as it was uh, you know, seven years ago, seven years ago, we, uh, you know, we had all that school lunch program. We had, we had 23 Chipotle's. We had a bunch of institutional accounts. Uh, all of that is gone. And, and I don't see it coming back without some government intervention. In other words, government interventions mandating schools buy local and stop buying from these big meat packers. They got Government's got to stop bailing out the big meat packers every time they get long on product. Yeah, that, that's kind of one of the things I want to talk to you about. Like, have you seen it? Are you seeing any movement on legislation or anything uh, that they're talking about putting in the next farm bill that you're hopeful about? No, I haven't. You know, we're fighting over this uh, Build Back Better thing right now, which is all, it, it, which is, you know, filling up the news. Uh, but once that money is approved, I, I think there's some, some, Folks in Washington, Andy Green, uh, you know, being the main one that I'm connected with, that we can start directing some dollars uh, to where we can start supporting what we want instead of what we've got. Yeah, because it kind of sounds like, you know, the, the checkoff referendum that seemed to have a lot of momentum, even up to a couple months ago, that seems to have stalled out. Uh, the yeah. test for 5014 is stalled out. Well, and now we've got a contract library. A lot of good that does anybody, you know, hell, pass the Booker bill, Just, you know, break them up. What's that contract library? What is it? Like I, well, they're kind of copying it off the pig, the hog thing, you know, uh, but how much good has that done a hog farmer? None. 
<laughs> and you know damn well they're not going to reveal any of these sweetheart deals with a contract library. You know, you might have seen my comment. I think I might have on, been on Twitter, but when Bruce Bass was on trial, when when we when when IBP was on trial, Tyson IBP in 2004, Bruce Bass testified under oath that they had a thousand more than a thousand different deals, none of them in writing. So what good's contract library going to do you? Well, yeah, you're right. And I think you and I both know that there are a lot of cattle deals that go on in this country on a handshake over the hood of a pickup, maybe a Keystone light or two. Yeah, right. But Bruce Bass had all those, you know, what he called, he liked to call them relationship deals. In mm -hmm. other words, give me all your cattle and I'll take care of you. You know, don't let anybody else buy your cattle and, and I'll, I'll give you the average of the week or I'll give you, you know, whatever over the average or depending on how many and, you know, what they were and all that. But, you know, when you talk about nothing in writing, what does that remind you of? The mafia. They don't put anything in writing. Yep. Right. Right. Even Trump, you know, even Trump, you know, when they're when they're investigating all this stuff around Trump, there's not a lot of stuff in writing. You know, you, that, you know, you, that's that's the way they operate. Well, if you write it down, they can always find that's proof and they can come back. You know, that's right. Bring that back later and you get, you know. Get yeah, that's right. So what. I'm a little disconnected and, you know, from, from what the markets have been doing lately, and we're kind of trying to keep the, keep the podcast current events. So we're recording this on a Thursday and we're going to release it on Monday. So what, uh, what's been going on in the markets Are the fats recovered at all, or. Well, I haven't really seen anything. Uh, I I've been at least in the last couple of days, I, I, I don't see anything really advancing as far as the market or, you know, what cattle are selling, uh, yeah, I, I just have to do some checking on that, uh, Brian. I, I, I'm not real sure where we're at uh, on, on cash sales or anything. It seemed, it, things seem like they're low to me. And it seems like the, you know, some of the, I'll say talking heads, and hopefully nobody will come back on me for that. But, you know, there, there's some talking heads that are saying, oh, it's fine. You know, prices are stable. You know, they're up a little bit. You know, and, and they're talking about hedging stuff on the board. But the price as a whole per pound, it's, way, way down from where it was two years ago. I mean, we're still 20, 30 cents a pound on all weight classes lower, I think. Right. And, but you've got your talking heads. It's their job to encourage people to feed cattle. You know, whether they're a land grad economist like a Daryl Peel out of Oklahoma State or a Stephen Koontz out of Colorado State, it's their job to rally, you know, the, the, the feedlots to, to, you know, to get cattle on feed so the packers have stuff to kill. And, and that's the game we've been playing now for 30 years. You know, hell, even, even uh, I remember we had that stop the, stop the steal uh, uh, rally in Omaha. Is that what they called it? Um, I think I know what you're stop talking the about. Stealing. It was yeah. stop the stealing, not stop yeah. the steal. It was stop the stealing. I guess that's where Trump got his, got his idea on stop the, stop the steal, maybe, but probably not. But, but anyway, I, Corbett Wall was there and, and Corbett Wall was really cranking on the March market. This was October. Uh, and, and he was just all excited about the March market. Man, it's going to be great. You got to get October last year, right? Well, this was a while. When was that? Stop the steal. Two years ago. Yeah, it was before the Tyson fire. 
wasn't it? Okay. Yeah. That would have been, had, that would have had to have been three years ago then. Yeah. But I, I just remember I, I was kind of concerned, you know, that corporate wall was sitting there trying to convince everybody to buy feeder cattle and saying March is going to be good based upon supply and demand. But the deal is we haven't had a market that was determined by supply and demand since 1973, maybe. You know, and I would argue that that is when the big packers started to cooperate instead of compete. And it's really just been a game for them to manage the market. What and makes you say that? What makes you say that, that they started to, uh, to, I guess, conspire collude back in 73 or? Well, well, I was, you know, I graduated from high school in 1969. And in 19, in 1970, you know, IBP got in a bunch of trouble financially. Uh, their banker basically said, look, you're, you better get to New York City and collect that, you know, what I think it was $9 million they were owed from the New York meat trade. And, and you know, if you don't come back with the money, you know, you're going to need to, you know, sell your company. We're going to liquidate. And so Courier Holman and, and one of their top executives headed off to New York. And they met with Mo Steinman, with the New York Mafia. And, and basically what IBP had done is they had transitioned from carcass trade to the box beef. And, and that changed the world in meatpacking. You know, in, in fact, it was in 1978 when, when I built my first feedlot at St. Francis, Kansas, I could have sold to as many as 20 different meatpackers. And, and so back in 1970, IBP was just, you know, thinking about this boxed beef idea. Instead of selling carcasses like every other packer in the country sold, they were going to go with boxed beef. And, and then they were going to try to, they were going to basically de-skill the industry so that they would box the beef. And the idea was then to ship it into these major urban centers and have the big retailers cut it up from boxed beef rather than from carcasses. And then they could de-skill, they could lower their wages. But what happened was IBP hit a brick wall with the union. The union, meat cutters union said, there ain't no way we are going to stand for boxed beef because we've got skilled cutters that deserve a living income. And, you know, we're not willing, we're not willing to, to you know, to go for the boxed beef thing. So here Courier Holman was having trouble selling his boxed beef. The, the New York meat trade owed him like $9 million that he couldn't collect. And so he showed up in, the, in New York City and talked to Mo Steinman. He was the, he was the representative of the, of the, of the meat uh, boys in New York City. And he was also a, a, a representative of the, of the New York Mafia. Basically, what most Diamond did is he pulled in the top retailers and their decision makers, uh, their meat buyers, and he pulled in the unions. And, and basically, they made a deal and they basically sold out. They, he bribed them is what he did. And, and, and IBP agreed to pay 50 cents a hundredweight on boxed beef going into the New York City market. And at that time, that represented 25% of the total meat trade in the United States, the beef trade, the total beef trade. So it was a massive amount. And, 
So when you draw a radius around New York City, you know, you're looking at Philadelphia, you're looking at a lot of a lot of people. And, and so and so they made the deal. IBP agreed to pay most diamond, the, 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 the supermarket executives, the union people were going to split this 50 cents, 100 on the box beef to do something absolutely contrary to the interests of workers. And for sure, contrary to the interest of the competition in the meat industry, which were all of these small meat packers that did nothing but carcass trade. And, and, you know, when I was in high school, I worked in the meat market and we cut everything from the carcass. So just a small little meat market in Evergreen, Colorado, we hung quarters in that carcass and, and they either came from pepper or lit back in Denver. And these were a couple of really top notch packers in Denver that killed really high quality cattle. And that's what we, that's what we sold in the, in the thrifty food market in Evergreen, Colorado. And, and so it wasn't long after that, that I was in the cattle business uh, after having graduated from Colorado State University in 1975, but things were progressing. IBP with the deal they made with the mafia changed their world and they owned the market. So now they had the market for box beef. And so they knocked out all these small packers. They called it, they called it the death march or the war of attrition, you know, but they basically starved out these these small uh, Midwest meat packers from actually Colorado to, you know, all the way through the, through the Midwest. Because IBP shows up with a truck full of boxed beef and says, Hey, you don't have to break down carcasses anymore. You just got to peel cuts off these things when you thaw them out. That's or right. whatever." And we can teach somebody how to do that job in no time at all. They don't have to be skilled. And, and, and so, you know, by then it was by, by now it's, it's, it's middle of it's the middle seventies. So we're kind of in that middle seventies timeframe. And a guy by the name of Hughes Bagley is, is now gone to work for IBP. And Hughes Bagley was a, was a real smart guy in the retail trade. And so the big problem that IBP had after making the deal with the New York mafia is, is they, they couldn't get rid of the whole animal. And so what the retailers decided they were going to do was, Hey, this is box beef. We don't have to buy carcasses anymore. We'll only buy what we what we have a demand for. So hey, just send us strips, you know, uh, uh, ribeyes and tenderloins, and and you guys can keep the rest of it. Well, you know what happened? IBP is now, you know, they're they're opening up the bigger plants and and they're putting a lot more animals through them, and now everything's backing up. It's all backing up on them. What are we going to do with the ground beef? What are we going to do with the trim? That is still a problem today for small meat processors. What do you do with the ground beef and the trim and the offcuts that you know not everybody wants? And, and so it's nine, it's it's around that middle 1970s time. And Hughes Bagley basically said, Well, let's put together what we would call a cattle pack. And so the cattle pack was that look, we'll give you a good deal, but you got to buy the whole animal. It's still going to be in a box but you've got to buy what represents the entire animal because we got to clean our coolers out so we can keep killing animals. If we can't sell it all, you know, we, we get, we just get shut down because our coolers are full. And, 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 and again, that is a big problem today for these small processors that are, that are struggling to sell everything. And, and so it was about that middle 1970s that, that 
IBP invites a consulting group from New York, uh, uh, well, actually from Boston. Uh, uh, you know, don't, I want to call it the Boston Consulting Group, but I'm not going to. It was a, it was a it was a consulting group from Boston. Okay, so so we say so we stay safe here. Okay, and basically they did a review of IBP's uh, business. And, and they said, look, uh, our, our suggestion is after reviewing everything that there's some big players here. You know, we've got IBP, we've got Cargill and we've got Montford and you guys are big. And, and you know what? You'd be so much better off if you cooperate rather than compete. And that was in the middle, that was in the middle 1970s. Well, you remember I said in 1973, I thought that there was some market manipulation. Right. IBP, IBP had already met with the New York Mafia. They were already getting very large and very influential. And I just remember 1973, how much money we lost feeding cattle. I mean, they were losing $100 a head. I mean, that was massive amounts of money back in those days. But the thing was, you got it back on the next turn, typically. And then everything started to change and, and it felt like they were managing the market instead of actually seeing supply and demand dictate the price. And so being intimate to that market all those years, uh, you know, from 1975 until today, I, I look back and, and I'm convinced that we haven't had a market in that long, that, that, amount, of period, that amount of time. And when, you, and when you look at the steady decline of our share of the consumer beef dollar, at the farm and ranch gate, and you look at the decline in the number of meat packers, uh, which, which they, you know, they they talk about that being the death march or the war of attrition on small packers. But the curves probably overlap pretty well. Yeah, and and the thing about the thing about the the war of attrition and the death march, uh, that mobile slaughter unit that's being delivered today to Great Falls, Montana. Originally, that was one of IBP's tram trailers. And I've got a set of notes from a meeting that IBP had about the tram. And basically what they did, and this, is, this really goes back to that war of attrition and, and the death march that was written about in the, in the Wall Street Journal back in those days. But IBP, because they now own the box beef market and, and were in partnership with the mafia and, and other uh, meat and meet, uh, you know, market people in the New York City area, they were, a, they were able to get a lot of demand for boxed beef and kind of shift the whole demand away from carcasses. And as a result, small plants all over the country lost their carcass business as, 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 as the big guys, the Cargills, the Montforts, and the IBPs shifted to boxed beef. And, and, so, and so what they did is these small Midwest Packers that had no market for their carcasses. And they weren't set up to, to do box beef because that was a whole major, major investment that they had to put onto their plant to be able to break the carcasses down and put them into boxes. And so basically what IBP did for, to them or for them is they went to those Midwest meat packers and say, hey, look, we will buy your carcasses, but we're going to haul them in this special trailer. It's, it's a tall, it's taller and it's lower so that we can swing a full half beef in those trailers. And they built rails in, that tra in those trailers, super stout built trailers. And, and they were able to, to carry whole half carcasses. 
but the but the small packer had to put in what they called the tram door so that the trailer would back up and fit and so they had to modify their plan a minimal amount nothing compared to what it would cost to build a box beef uh, uh, facility but they were able then to sell the carcasses to IDP. Well, IDP knew that those small packers were going to go broke, bidding against live cattle on one hand against IBP, and then having the only market for the carcass being IBP. And the set of notes says, we've got to do it quickly. And, it's, and we've, we've got to move fast because this isn't going to last long. We're going to, those guys are out of business. And so now, I've got four meat packers I can sell to in St. Francis, Kansas. And of course, you know the story, I ended up with one. It was national beef. And then one day in, in December of 1998, I got the word from national beef that they weren't going to buy my cattle anymore. And I had 14,000 head of cattle in a 12,000 head feedlot and had no market at all. And so I'm just saying the big meat packers have controlled this market in partnership with the big retailers for a very long time. And we've just been played for fools. I, I, I talk about the, the uh, what is that, fantasy football? I, I talk about the fantasy market game and, and the futures market. And oh my goodness, does IBP ever understand how to manipulate the futures market? In fact, it was back in 1994 that IBP had 122% captive supplies in their at their Texas plants in the Panhandle in Amarillo, 122% captive supply. What, is, what does that mean, Mike? Well, well, what that was revealed through through discovery as a result of an IBP lawsuit uh, in 1994. The market that spring dropped $17 in six weeks, and so Robert M. Cook, uh, an attorney, filed a lawsuit on behalf of cattle feeders against IBP for, for wrecking the market. And what they found in that is IBP had contracted 22% more animals than they needed. But part of their policy was when they contracted those animals, it was IBP company policy that they had to short the futures markets. Now think about that just for a second. They don't need any cattle. They got too many, they got more than they can kill and they're shortened the futures markets. Well, they're rigging, that's a rig. Futures market four. The futures market are used by the Packers to get us, to mentally condition us to sell cheaper. I just remember all those years, I had to get up every day to look at the futures market to see how I was, how I was supposed to feel. Now that's stress and, and that's not right. That is no way to live, but that is the facts. And, and, and everybody was looking at the futures market all the time to see how they were going to price cattle. And so we saw clear back in those days, uh, you know, that 1994 period, especially when those big meat packers really were, were cooperating. You could see they'd already delegated territories. And so they, I had, National Beef was my buyer. Now IBP might come by on a Monday morning and grab a cup of coffee and just gut shoot you on, on the price. But all they were really doing is setting it up for national beef to buy at a lower at a lower value. Uh, they were mentally conditioning the feedlots. I mean, I, I was in Yuma, Colorado one day at a at a feedlot, 
and, and this young man uh, was, was really struggling to survive. The family had lost a lot of money and, and they were really out on a, out on a limb. And, and I remember the IBP buyer rolled in uh, while I was there. And of course the futures were down the limit that morning. And, and he bid this young feedlot manager some ridiculously low price. And this kid actually threw up in the parking lot. He threw up. He knew he was going to lose everything. He was going to lose all the family's investment. They were going to be bankrupt when it was over. And I just thought then, I said, this is wrong. What these big packers are doing to people and the cattle sellers and the feedlot operators, and really all we were as feedlot operators during those days, is transfer agents. As a feedlot operator, you know, it was all about keeping your feedlot full. And so you'd go all over the country looking for ranchers that wanted to regain ownership. You, 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 know, you were trying to find cattle feeders to keep pens full. And really, in the end, what we did was, is we transferred wealth from people who fed, whether they were a rancher or a, or a feeder or background or whoever retaining ownership, we transferred that wealth to the meatpacker. And whether we knew it or not, that's exactly what we were doing. But once I figured out that's what I was doing, I had enough of it. And I joined a group of cattlemen in suing IBP in 1996. So just to kind of review there, uh, guys, you know, IBP got in trouble in 1970. They, they went to the New York Mafia. They made a deal. It saved their life. By, by 1980, they were building the big packing plant in Garden City, Kansas, which we saw a nice story this last week from NPR that Don Stoll was was quoted in the article about building that slaughterhouse in Garden City. And then they wiped out my old friends, the Pepper Pack Company, the Litvak Packing Company, Alpha Beta and Pueblo, Sterling Pack in Colorado. They wiped out all of these, all of these uh, Midwest packers. Uh, and, and, then, and then they basically just start managing the market with the guys that are left. And that's Cargill, Monfort, and, and IBP. And, and of course, national was 5% of the market. You know, IBP was killing around 30 some percent of the market just by themselves. And then, and then Montford and Cargill were in there at around 20 something percent. But national was still one of the good size, good size packer. So we always considered it to be four firm. You know, the four firm concentration was well over 80% at that time. And it maintained that way. So I would argue that they have been managing this market for a long time and they've had the cooperation of cattle facts. They've had the cooperation of these, of these land grant economists that were always out there teaching their kids in the marketing class. I remember at CSU, yeah. you know, I got, I took the marketing class. So I understood futures markets. In fact, I owned a futures, a trading office at one time in our feedlot where we were, where we were uh, custom feeding cattle, we could also help people manage risks with the futures market. And I feel like such an idiot, you know, for for uh, for conducting business that way for for those years that I did. So anyway, I felt I owed it to the industry to sue the big packers, and 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 we started with IBP. You just will pick on the big one, and because they were leading the way, and the others were simply following. I'm sorry. Every time I hear you talk about, you know, the, the lawsuits you've been through and the history you've had, and I'm, I'm always really impressed with your intimate knowledge of, of these lawsuits and, and the market knowledge, um, you know, and, and how we got things so screwed up. 
So, you know, we, we've talked before about, you know, how do we find our way out of it? And, you know, we all, you know, we agree it's, it's local community agriculture. It's, you know, local food hubs and transitioning agriculture to, to a more regenerative, you know, type system. And, you know, I, I, I got to wonder what a lot of guys are thinking right now. You know, it's, it's early fall. Fuel prices are spiking. Yeah. They're going high. Mm-hmm. It's been all over the news the last two weeks. Uh, like I saw this morning that anhydrous ammonia was $950 a ton. Like how much is it normally, Brian? I think like 200. Uh, Mike, do you know? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, it's skyrocketed. It, it, so uh, do you still farm? Do you still farm anything really? Mike? Yeah, I do. Uh, we farm, but we use manure. We haven't bought fertilizer in yeah. 45 years. Okay. So like, you know, I'm not wrong though. Like anhydrous is, is going to be a thousand bucks a ton. Probably it's, by the it's end price of the gouging. There's no reason for oh, that. Absolutely. absolutely. Price gouging. It's, it's back when we had the other big uh, run up in grain prices. Uh, what year was that? Uh, but anyway, they, they have testimony from, from some of the fertilizer executives when they were on a call together, rigging the market and fixing the prices, which, you know, there's been all kinds of litigation around that. And basically they're, their comments were, look, where grain prices are, we can, there was more room to push, you know, potash higher or anhydrous ammonia higher. And, and so they, they really do control the market of, of, of those uh, key ingredients. Uh, and depending on how many uh, government payment uh, dollars that farmers receiving, uh, plus whatever the market is. I mean, they can manage those inputs to capture any benefit that the farmer might see in higher grain prices. So like if all the inputs are up 400%, which is kind of what I'm seeing, like Roundup is up 400%. Oh, seriously? Yeah, I, I think I saw an article yesterday that said that, uh, that like they'd taken the price quote off of Roundup. Like that, whoever makes it now, says, we're not even going to price it to you until we can deliver it because every day Lumber. the price of our materials <laughs> yeah. is going up. Yeah. Like, right. Wow. Right. So you have to contract something that's skyrocketing in price and you don't know how much it's going to cost when you get it, but it's already going to be four times as expensive as it was last year. But I don't know if you've noticed here lately, uh, Cargill is making a real push to capture the regenerative word. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure invite you to be it. part of their program where they were they're going to make that those inputs more affordable but they're going to want to buy everything from you at a, at a ridiculously low price and so the question becomes you know how regenerative can can you really be when you're never making any money uh and and you can't really invest in your operation to the extent that you need to to repair it from all those years of industrial production so there is so much wrong going on right now and, and, and if I was a, it, well, th- this would be a good time to maybe get out of the, out of this industrial production model and, and just get That's back. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking maybe yeah. this is a blessing in disguise where it pushes people to have to not rely on outside inputs. Right. 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 But, but, you know, Brian, we, we were in, in CK, we, we were talking the other day about some of these meat packing projects that are yeah. going in. And, and so you know, as a, as a farmer or cattleman, I mean, you really get pissed off when you get screwed. 
And mm -hmm. I mean, it's in your face. Everybody knows it. There's nothing you can do about it. And you want to just come up with, with a solution of some sort. Well, I don't know where, you know, those Nebraska cattle guys got $325 million. Uh, but they it's think like a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And, and Hey, that just gets the plant built. What are you going to operate on? You know? And, and I think the thing that they overlooked uh, is, is access to the market. Yeah. And, and when I, when I look at, you know, dealing in the market as it is today with big meat packers, big retailers and big food service companies, it's kind of like those fertilizer markets. There is no competition. Uh, you cannot get market access. And, and, I, and, and, and the reason I wanted to kind of review the history of IBP is to show you how hard it was for IBP to make it yeah. uh, in the marketplace and how much power the big retailers had. Remember, Safeway was price fixing clear back in those days. That, they called it the Bray case. I mean, but IBP innovated. They changed the game. They changed the industry when they started selling boxed beef instead of carcasses. So they changed the game and, and the ones that were slow to adapt or couldn't afford to change, it couldn't afford the investment, IBP got their market share. So it was what, less than 20 years, IBP went from a minor to having over 30% of the market by itself? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and, but the thing IBP did is they changed the game by cheating, by bribing, by breaking the law. And in fact, they got a felony count over it. They didn't serve prison time. And I think the fine was around $7,000 because the judge said in that case, when, they, when it went to trial over, the, over their dealings with the mafia and the, and, the, and the meat executives, well, what else could IBP have done? They were gonna go broke. If, if they wouldn't have bribed the mafia and, and those boys, they would have gone broke and the judge sympathized with IBP. Oh, uh, you're home and you guys, you were really forced to do that. And, and it sort of goes back to that, to that uh, rule of reason that we've seen used in the last 20 years uh, to justify big meat packers and their captive supplies and, and, and the things that they're doing to reduce, you know, the producer share of the consumer dollar. And so, in 2004, when we, when we finally ended up in court with, with IBP, which was by then Tyson, uh, you know, the jury awarded us $1.28 billion and agreed that, yes, IBP was manipulating the market. And that is, that is in violation of the Packers and Stockyards Act. And they can't do it. In fact, the Packers and Stockyards Act says that if what a big meat packer does or really any meat packer does, has even so much as the effect of reducing competition, they can't do it. And so, and so the jury awarded the cattlemen 1.28 billion, which we honestly did not care about. We wanted the injunctive relief because they were, they were taking that much every month from us. Right. We needed injunctive relief to make them stop. What did that judge say, Judge, judge uh, uh, Lyle E. Strom say, a Reagan appointee, D-Reg judge? He said they had a reason to use captive supplies. They had to do it because the other packers were doing it and 
So I'm reversing this jury's decision on this case and Calicrate and you and your fellow cattle producers can pay Tyson's court costs of nearly $80,000. So they took away the case and the, and the jury award and blocked us from ever getting injunctive relief. That is when the big packers got the green light to pillage and plunder big time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Did they ever, did you, could you ever question the judge or anything like that? I don't. Sure we did. We appealed it. Absolutely. And, and, and all we did was run into more Reagan appointee. It would make me think that they're bribed. In the appeals court. And so we lost there. We went all the way to the Supreme Court and we presented the case to the Supreme Court. Well, guess who's the, the chief justice? John Roberts. If, if you were involved back then, you remember John Roberts as an attorney with a lot of Supreme Court experience. And the last case that he tried in front of the Supreme Court was a checkoff case with, US, with the USDA. The checkoff case that, we, that the cattlemen lost. John Roberts was the attorney for USDA that won the case against cattlemen. So he ends up as chief justice. Then you got Clarence Thomas, you got, a, you got Alito, you got, you got these other Reagan appointee types, DREG judges. And they said, no, we're not going to hear the cattleman's case. What we feel is more important and more worth our time is the Anna Nicole Smith family. Oh. <laughs> and they threw our case out, refused to hear it and gave the big meat packers the green light to basically vertically integrate the cattle business as they had already done to poultry and pork. But that doesn't even make any sense. Like the judge says, well, yeah, it's wrong, but we're going to let him do it because the other Get guys reason. are doing it. That's like, well, Mike, how come you're not suing everybody? Well, you'd have to sue all four of them at once, it'd sound like, to get that judge to do anything. I, it, that's the most- no, you were never going to get heard. that judge to do anything, Brian. No, no, not that judge. He would never do anything. He was a D-reg judge. In the, in the days of Reagan, see, Reagan is the one that thought government was the problem. Remember that? Yeah. He thought government was the problem and regulations were the problem. So basically what he did is, even though there's laws on the books, they just didn't enforce those laws. Well, we'll enforce <laughs> some, but not the others. Yeah, well, I mean, familiar. the Dockyards Act is as good today as it's ever been, if you look at the wording. I mean, it is it is a seriously strong piece of, of, uh, of, of work. I mean, I mean it's, a, it's a terrific law, and, and yet it, it has had no enforcement. I mean, right. no enforcement. In our case that we brought in, in 1996 was really the first litigation, the, the first enforcement. Uh, the, I mean, agencies wouldn't wouldn't do anything to enforce it. They were owned by the Packers. That revolving door we talked about. Uh, they weren't gonna they weren't gonna enforce it. And and so we it was a private right of action, which was also strength a very strong part of the Packers' Dockyards Act. Giving you the private right of action lets you do it, whether the government will do their job or not. So it took us eight years to finally get in front of a courtroom. But that judge, Judge, judge uh, Strom, did everything he could to write the jury instructions to, to not allow a, a positive decision for cattlemen. And the jury saw through it. The jury found for the cattlemen 100% on every single jury instruction. And, and so it was, it was a significant win uh, in a courtroom. And, and I would argue it's, it was the most important case 
to date uh, as far as the cattle business was concerned and maybe agriculture. Are we going to keep fairness in the markets? Are we going to keep packers from cheating the producers and, the, and really the consumers like they did in 1921? Previous to that, you know, they, we started complaining about meat packer power clear back in the 1880s. You remember the robber barons? We had concentrated power and wealth in almost all these major industries. When has it never not been an issue? Yeah, I don't know. You know, that, that kind of makes me think about you know, <laughs> Pharaoh. You know, you think about Pharaoh always wins. It doesn't seem to matter. What happens? Pharaoh, the concentrated wealth, right? Meatpackers. Wins. the con- And that's why we have always said that concentrated power and wealth is the greatest threat to any free society. And until we start to address that concentrated power and wealth, of course, it's never been more concentrated than it is today, then there's really nothing you can do uh, except for what we're, what, what we're talking about here, and that is building local regional food systems. And, and so the, the guys in Nebraska that want to build the slaughterhouse, and it's going to be 1,500 head a day, and it's going to be really cool, and it's going to be like future beef was when they built that, or the Aberdeen plant when they built that. Sure, it's hey, going to look like a spaceship and just gleam. Oh, yeah. And, and, and they don't have a hope in hell of selling through the existing system because the retailers have not been paying the full cost of production for beef, and they're not going to because they yeah. it, And that gets back to the judge saying, well, hey, you, you, got, you, got, you got to buy below cost of production. The other guys are. You know, you're going to go out of business if you don't. So there's just no law enforcement that saves uh, a, a plant like the one they want to build in Nebraska and, and market fair so that they can sell through the existing system. 1,500 animals a day, who's going to buy that? Who is going to buy that meat? And boy, we are not dealing with packers like IBP anymore that were just a meat packer. We're dealing with global conglomerates that can lose all kinds of money on the cattle side and will happily do so to get rid of a, a rancher project like that, like that North Platte plant. These guys so need some education. They, and oh, they'll hate that word, but they really do need to get informed about history and, and to understand, you realize you've got to be my age, 70 years old to, as, to, as, to have even experienced a competitive market. Right. It, we haven't had a competitive market for since the early 70s. We have not had a competitive market. And, and people, they don't want to admit that. But people today have absolutely no interest in, in negotiating a cash price with a meat packer, especially a meat, meat packer you can't win with. He's got all the power and you have none. And I remember when captive supplies really became popular, Jim Keller at the Oakley Feedlot in Kansas his, his family had built a good size operation. And, and Jim came in and of course it was all about getting bigger, you know, uh, you gotta get bigger, get out. And so it's so easy for a feedlot, just, you know, they got the feed mill, they got the scales, they got the office, you know, they got the shop. Hey, we can just add another row of pins on and look how much money we're gonna make. I mean, that all drops to the bottom line. It's gonna be yeah. awesome. And so that's what drove these feedlots to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what Keller did. And so Keller was 
was just right for IBP to go in and pick off as a captive supply feedlot. Well, that worked pretty good for a little while. Jim didn't have to negotiate price. He, he could just feed cattle. He could worry about buying his grain and his hay and you know, keeping his pens clean and talking to some customers, knowing he had an advantage in the market because he was getting a sweetheart deal from IBP. But as a result, the whole marketplace fell. And we went from getting 65, 68% of the consumer beef dollar back to the farm and ranch gate or the producer, cattle producers uh, operation to, to as low as 27% during uh, May of June, 2020 during COVID. Now it's running around 35%. So we've, we've just lost, we've lost our ranch income, our community income. And of course, you know, you know, guys where you live, you, you drive down the main streets and, you know, oh, there's yeah. a dollar store in, in a lot of these towns and, you know, there's a Walmart within a hundred miles. Uh, but otherwise it's just complete economic devastation all across rural America. And it, and it's, and, it, and, and for these, for these ranchers at North Platte thinking they're going to compete in that market, it's just sad to, to go out there and throw another 300 million down the, down the hole. But it's, it's like that plant in Australia that I, that we talked about this, this last week that had to shut down, uh, you know, uh, Australian ag, you know, they, they, they claim where their plant, their thousand head a day plant had to close due to high cattle prices. Well, wait a minute. They raised their own cattle. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't that be the point that the reason they we built the is because yeah. we were hoping to raise cattle prices. Yeah. And, and so it didn't make any sense at all, but we do know that in Australia, Cargill and JBS control the market along with their retail partners, Cole, Woolworths and Costco just like in the United States with Walmart, with Amazon, now with Whole Foods, with Kroger. You cannot penetrate that. And the only way to get volume at 1,500 a day or even 1,000 a day or whatever it may be, you cannot get into that market unless you're one of the big guys in, in partnership as they are now. But, but you know, you take a Tyson and a JBS and a Cargill, they have all the meats. They've got beef, pork, and poultry. And so pig meat. If they want to see a decline in beef demand, all they got to do is raise the price on poultry or pork. See how they can manage those markets? And they can do it in conjunction with the big retailer and to some extent, too, the, the food service company like Cisco. And, and in chicken and pork, there's nobody left to fight them on price. Absolutely. There's no way to fight them on price. And, and, where, and what is going on in Denver right now? If there was any confusion about the market being controlled by a bunch of crooks. Denver, the trial is on this week on, on the chicken price fixing. Oh, I don't know about really? this. Tyson, Pilgrim's Pride, uh, Purdue, and others are being tried in Denver this week. The trial started this week with opening statements. And they are, they are being tried for price fixing. And Tyson has already admitted, admitted guilt and has turned state's evidence for a lighter sentence. <laughs> and we think we're going to build smaller of a fine. And, and so we, we're going to build, we're going to build a slaughterhouse. Come on, people. That is not going to happen. So my answer to this is, is to stay small, just stay small and sell direct to the consumer. And hey, I'm sorry you have a 50,000 head feedlot. I, I, I'm sorry about that. 
but it's too big. You've gone through the pain of having too big of a feedlot yourself. I took a 12,000 head feedlot and turned it into a 1,500 head feedlot. And I'd like to see, you know, thousands of those get back in business. You know, we lost 87,000 of them uh, because of this, you know, war on, on, on the cattle market. And, and I'm saying I'd love to see a bunch of those guys come back and we got to build our own local regional food systems. And we've got to build some public markets. We've got, you know, I've got two meat markets uh, and I can, and they both sell carcass beef. Uh, we don't do box beef. Uh, uh, we don't sell box beef. We, we, we mm. want to sell carcass uh, product. And, and the thing that you, that you get with going back, you know, I, we talk about walking backward into the future. Uh, who said that? I, we'll have to look that one up. But I, but I love it. I love the idea that we can go back to carcasses which improve quality, employ higher skilled cutters, puts more dollars back to the farm and ranch gate, more money in the, in the meat cutters, uh, the workers' pockets, because now we've got skilled workers and, and we end up with a much higher quality, better tasting product. But here's the one thing that, that, really, that really hurt when we adopted you know, in full force the box beef concept after we switched all the big retailers over to box beef and food service over to box beef is, is food safety. Yeah. And they started packing a cat, an animal within 24 to 36 hours from slaughter into, into cryovac and into a box. Basically what you did is you packaged the pathogens. And when those, when you open up that, that cryovac at the other end where it's going to get cut, the pathogens come back to life. And so what, did, what happened? We had Jack in the box. We, we had the big ConAgra recall of 20 million pounds, you know, and nobody wanted to talk about it, but the reason that was happening is because we had shifted to box beef and lost the pathogen control that dry aging gives us. And if you look at the Wisconsin study, you get nearly 100% pathogen control with six to seven days of dry age on a carcass. So, hey, let's do that. Let's slaughter on site where the animal is like I do in St. Francis. Let's ship our carcasses into a cut plant or, or into a, a, a bunch of small meat markets that display carcasses hanging in their coolers like happened in Evergreen, Colorado when I was a kid working in that meat market. And, and let's develop that market but again for for carcass beef, and I think we we give the consumer a far better deal, and 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 not at a higher price, not at a higher price, and and at the same time we we get a lot more people out there killing cattle. Now that fifty thousand head feedlot that I'm sorry that you got so big. This, if we do this in various places around the country then the big meat packers are going to have a hard time convincing the justice department why they're paying so little and the big retailers are going to be brought right into it because they're partners i talk about how the big retailers robbing the bank and the, and the packers are driving the getaway car uh, and you can take that one step farther the big meat packers are, are robbing the bank but the big captive supply feedlots are driving the getaway car because the big cap to supply feedlots are in a position that they're being guaranteed, you know, certain returns, while the 87,000 of us that went out of business, uh, uh, 
while we were while we were going out of business, these these bigger feedlots with the captive supply sweetheart deals were doing well and adding more pins on uh, so that they could replace us. And and so, but all this they were going broke, but they didn't know it yet. Well, yeah, it was early. Uh, it, it, they're scared now, though. Uh, I think they're scared now. It doesn't matter how big you are, your cost to be reduced uh, by by this monopoly that we have between the big packers, retailers, and food service. Uh, it, the, even the big feedlots are going to be kind of sorry for for what they've done. But but I, that we're probably not quite there yet. But but I think I think it's getting there. But but the deal is, if we can put a market needs information to function. And this is why transparency is so important. And rather than contract libraries, we need full and total transparency. I want to know what Cactus Feeders is getting. I want to know what, what uh, uh, all of these you know, partners of JBS and Cargill, Green Plains with Cargill, uh, Pinnacle with JBS. I want to know what are those divisions, those feeding divisions getting paid. They're supposed to be separate entities. But I want to know what the complete and total uh, remuneration is. Uh, what do they get? The kickbacks at the end of the year. We need to we need to figure those in. You know, what are they getting that 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 lets them continue to build on more pens and put more cattle in the pens they've already got and stay so full when the rest of us are going out of business? That that is gonna that is gonna help more than anything to to make the market better for everybody. But I think if we can lead with a bunch of these, you know, small plants, even mobile slaughter that's selling to butcher shops and, and that, that information gets into the market, then we have, a, we have a better chance of increasing the overall market, which the, you know, the reason I get out of bed every day is to increase income at the farm and ranch gate. That's where we have to see income increase. Now you can increase, you know, the feedlot income but that doesn't necessarily translate back to the farm and ranch gate. They're keeping those key, they're keeping those dollars if they're one of those captive supply operators. They continue to want to buy calves as cheap as they possibly can and feeder cattle as cheap as they possibly can. And they've got the leverage to do that now. Right. How, how long do you think that, that North Platte, Nebraska plant will be around? Do you think they'll make it five years before one of the big four owns them? I don't think they'll build it. You think I hope they won't build it. It won't. It, it, the, I mean, the big the big four will likely buy it uh, if it, if they do build it. Uh, not saying they'll they'll. I mean, think about it. The big four haven't built any new plants in how many years? I mean, that Garden City plant was one of the last plants built, and that and that and that was in 1980. I've had that same question too. Like. You know, because that's been the narrative since the Tyson fires. The big packers are like, oh, we need all these profits so we can build more capacity, blah, 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 blah. But there's like, I don't see any plants being built. We don't hear of any plants being built by the big four. Like, I've heard several back-channel rumors like, oh, my cousin's brother's dog's hairdresser works for Cargill, and he says they're going to be, you know, putting in another 3,000 head a day of capacity. Like, okay, where? Where's the evidence? Show me. Show me that the Packers have used this thousand dollar ahead profit they've been taking for the last six months to build any capacity or to do anything but line their own bank accounts. Well, we did see some expansion at Dakota City years ago, and, and that was just so they could speed the chain up. 
So they, 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 they were going to put more through the existing facility. So they just built more cooler space on yeah. that they could put more through an existing facility. But all we've done is shut down plant capacity. I mean, they buy plants to close them. Exactly. That's the thing I think. Yeah. The other thing that I think the big packers are smart enough to understand is their model will not work in the future. You cannot work people under those kinds of conditions. Unless we can keep the supply of refugee workers, people that are willing to live seven families to a trailer house, ride together 14 to a suburban or an or a old broke down car with the oil pouring out of the motor, that will not work going forward, not after COVID. You are not going to be able to find the labor force that you can exploit in the way that these big packers have. And I think they see their own model as being unworkable. I don't think it can work going forward. And box beef is going to, you know, I'm, I'm sounding the alarm on box beef. It's unsafe. You know, IBP said in 1996, we're going to cook your food for you. You're not even going to have to worry about cooking food because, well, he knew because we had to cook it to get rid of the E. coli. Yep, yep. They'd already, though, said quantity is more important than quality. This is why we've got these 1,500-pound fat cattle is, we, is we're using all the performance-enhancing drugs that are available, but we're decreasing quality, decreasing the, the tenderness and the flavor. But, hey, if we cook it, you know, low and slow, cook it for a long time, you'll be yep. and we'll make a lot more money at the end of the day because we can make a lot more killing big ones than we can little ones, but we'll discount those big ones, but we're going to want them. We want the big ones. So I, I don't think their model works going forward. I think it's over. And I think we've got to rebuild the, the, the food system and we have got to decentralize it. We, we've got to have community-based, regional-based yeah. uh, food systems. Can I also add, we really need to educate people on how to buy their food because that also has an impact on it. If Even if you're not a producer, how you're buying your food makes a huge difference in the community that you're supporting and also the demand that you're supporting, like cooked food. Like I get that it's convenient and stuff, but sometimes it's, it's just, it's not. CK, that's going to be, that's going to be a tough one there because they yeah. already know how to buy food. It's the I know. It's yeah. the cheapest. You know, you know what I've always thought I, we, somebody should invent this technology. Uh, there's a scanner as you're, as you're pushing your cart out of the Walmart or out of the Costco. IBM's kind of made that. Yeah. So I want to, I want a scanner that's going to look at your basket of groceries as you, as it goes out and it's going to give you a rating. Oh, human exploitation, animal suffering, community, <laughs> community degradation, environmental decline. And, and, and you're going to get rated as you as you go out the door. Like how you support society. So now you're going to know, oh, oh and, and then there's going to be a dollar figure come up of what those groceries really cost with all the externalized costs that, that went into that basket of food. You're talking about like a social credit score for food. Oh, heck yeah. There I, you go. I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about the whole social credit thing. Like they're implementing it in China. Like. Oh, you spent on the sidewalk last week, Callie Crate, so you don't get a bus ticket today. You got to walk to work. It's like yeah. Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah. that kind of surveillance, like, uh, I, I don't know, but. But we need, but it's peer pressure. Uh, it's EK, it's peer pressure to get people off the, off the aggressive price shop, 
shopping consumerism. It's what's dri- it's what's driven the growth of Walmart and it's driving the growth. Well, I think of yeah, even stores. even one thing that you mentioned in the last or the first podcast we did with you was I stopped taking the punch cards and doing the the discounted, you know, shopper number and I I I've started doing that too just because I'm like, no, I want to support your local business. I don't want to take more off of what you're doing. And so it's it's um I mean, I get it because I have I have a lot of people in my life who they just want to buy the cheapest thing and they don't think about what kind of quality groceries they're buying. And I always, because we're in the industry, I always think about no, I'm I want to invest in in my body living forever. So uh, not forever, but but I really think we're I think we've got enough people like you now that that do want to buy that way that we can support a, 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 some some growth. Yeah. If, alternative local regional food system. I think in, in the urban centers, there's a high enough percentage there. We've proven it in Colorado Springs with Ranch Foods Direct. We've got a really right. nice customer base there. And, and John Tyson could come to Ranch Foods and stand at our door. And he could say to, our, to the customers that come in my store saying, hey, we got the same thing as Calicrate, except it's cheaper. Of course he doesn't. But I think my customers would, you know, walk right by. They, they, they wouldn't have the time. They wouldn't take the time to even talk to the guy. Yeah. They, they just want to support community and they want to eat well. And you know what? We've got our second generation now. It's been 21 years since we started Ranch Foods Direct. We've got the second generation. The kids that grew up eating from Ranch Foods Direct are now working with us. That's cool. Maybe it's summertime job during college. But these are the kids that came into our very first retail store in our original location and look through that door, that glass door into the carcass cooler. And, and every morning, the first thing you did, and maybe you did it at, at noon too, is you got the Windex out and you washed all the nose prints and hand prints off the windows. Mm-hmm. The, the kids that led their parents through that carcass cooler and into the cut room on a tour. And now they are working with Ranch Foods Direct. And I guarantee you, that's, they are not buying anything from a Walmart. You, you, those are the best kind of customers to have. Those are, those are loyal customers for life. Yeah. So, Hey, Brian, let, can I go back to that Nebraska North Platte plant just for real quick? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, before we go today, I, I want to talk to you about the bander. Cause uh, I think I, I mean, I need to use one. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. So, so what do you got about, what do you got for North Platte? I think well, see, did I, we, beat I, him? I, we didn't beat them up enough already. Well, no, I just, I just, I just want to give them one more reason to stop and think a minute. Uh, in 1996, the governor of South Dakota had a cattle conference, and he invited me to be on the panel. And I think he invited me because I was up there during the spring, uh, and and I presented at a large gathering in South Dakota back when Johnny Smith and Hermine Schumacher could gather up 800 to 1,000 people, you know, to to. In a, in a sale barn to, to listen to my, you know, what the heck's wrong with this market. And, and so I'd been up there and then the governor invited me to be on a, on a, on a panel and, and actually come in as, as one of the presenters. But that day, Bob Peterson was the lead off. He was the IBP president and CEO. He led off. And, and this is all on my blog. If you go to my blog and put in South Dakota governor's conference, you can, you can see it, but I digitized those old VHS tapes and it's now up on my blog. And so Peterson started out the day and I ended up the day I, I was, I wrapped it all up. And then we had a panel discussion, which is the, 
funnest part to watch when Peterson blows up and gets mad. Uh, and, and I mean, says GD, the worst word, you know, that I know of and in front of a whole, you know, thousand people in that, in that auditorium. But the most important thing that I got out of when I digitize those, those VHS tapes, I had to watch every single one of them all the way through. And, and, and cause digitizing, you can't go fast. It's got to go with the speed of the tape. And so I listened to Bill Heffernan's presentation and Bill Heffernan warned IBP that yes, you're big, you're strong, you're mean and you're tough and you're kind of a bully, but you know what? You don't have a chance in the world of conglomerates. And you know what? It was five years later that Tyson bought IBP. Even IBP with over 30% control of the market wasn't big enough and strong enough to compete with a conglomerate. Cargill, Tyson, JBS, you can't compete North Platte. You cannot compete in these, in these markets. And there's talks of other plants. And what we don't need is many versions of the big plants that absolutely require you to buy cattle below cost of production exploit the workforce, haul animals too far on a truck right. and, and degrade the environment with all of the cheap grains that we subsidize so that these integrators like Tyson, Cargill and JBS and those companies so that they can have cheap something cheap to feed to their livestock. That's all coming right out of taxpayer pockets. And this is just another reason why I don't think that model works going forward. It's hard to argue with. So I want to know, how many plants like yours could that $300 million build? Oh, my goodness. You could build, <laughs> you could build 300 of them and have some nice working capital to go along with it. Hey, million bucks. You can, you can build a plant like I've got and have some working yeah. capital. But what you got to have is that retail. You got to have that retail uh, presence. You've got to be able to hook up with a public market, or I like the idea of a co-ownership mar market. So, you know, in, in cities that, that don't like public markets because the rent is, is too cheap and the developers don't like them because they want to collect the high rents, uh, build, build some spaces that you've got the, you got the bakery, you got a, a, car, a whole animal butcher shop, you got a coffee roaster, a brewer, a distillery. I mean, you, you've got the cheese maker in there. Basically, it's a public market but it's owned by the people that are, that own the businesses inside that market. And I think we start creating these new spaces. And so if we want to do a build back better local regional food system development concept, let's start with the end in mind and make sure we've got the retail demand for what we're doing. Otherwise we're going to see these small plants that have, that have cranked up, just go out of business. Just this last week, the, the, there's been two plants uh, go out of business. In the last couple of weeks, there's been two small plants go out of business. One's in receivership and, and another one, I'm not sure of the status, but I think they're done as well. And we warned of that. We knew that could happen because once the big boxes get their, their shelves stocked again, then they're, you know, the, the, the consumers, CK, like you were talking about, that are price shoppers just go back there and, and don't support that, that smaller operator. Right. So, you know, we... We had a question on Twitter and you helped me answer it. Um, you know, and for our listeners, the question was, is what's the difference between 
a public market and a grocery store, how how could a grocery store function more like a public market? Uh, do you want to define that? Yeah. Well, you know, we and we were all talk, we were talking about food hubs, and, and what I see too is a becoming a food hub, and and so basically you've got a you've got the goods of the region that are being aggregated in this space. Uh, that's a public market, so it's got full retail available plus wholesale. So if you're a restaurant, you want to come in and buy meat or, or buy produce or whatever you can, and you can buy it at a good rate direct from farmers in this, in this space that we could call a public market. It's very high energy. It's the place where everybody wants to be. It's got a great beer. It's got good coffee in the morning. It's got the pastries. The, it's just got, it's got the best hamburger in the, in, of anywhere. It's got, it's got the best carnitas, uh, tacos. It's, it's, it's just going to be the place to be. And, and so you compare that to a grocery store. Well, a grocery store is buying from a distributor and they work on a margin and they, they are just not gonna be able to buy from farmers and pay them a decent rate if they're gonna compete with the Albertson, Safeway, Kroger, Walmart type, you know, Whole Foods companies that are, that are just, you know, maximizing returns. And, and there's a there's a slide that I use in, in my yeah. presentations. You'll find it on my blog, but it's it's the return on equity slide, and and uh, you're going to see the the big grocer you know making twenty percent, the big packer making seventeen percent, and then you've got or and in fact the grocers making more like thirty percent, and then you've got Cisco that's making forty three point six percent return on equity. And, and so if you're a grocery store, you're competing, trying to compete, you know, to buy, to, to make these kind of dollars and get those kind of returns. And if you don't, your shareholders aren't happy. Although you do have a few small independent grocery stores around that are cooperatively owned, that, that do have the capacity, that aren't profit driven, that do have the capacity to help in the way that a food hub or public market might, that, but they'd be very rare. Well, I, I think that if you go go to the Reading Terminal Market in in Philadelphia, uh, there's seventy some businesses inside that space, and these are these are real businesses. These aren't just little tables set up with some trinkets on them. I mean, these are there's a couple major meat markets with coolers and cut rooms and saws and grinders and the whole thing in there. It, it's got it's got a, a lot of Amish presence, Mennonite Amish type presence from vegetables to, you know, all kinds of canned goods. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a huge market and it is really the heart of the city. Uh, it's where it's, it's the place to go if you're in Philadelphia and it's the place to go to get good food. Then you got the Milwaukee market. Again, it's a public market like Reading Terminal Market. It's public, the rents are cheap. There you, go. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's to incentivize small business to make sure that they're, that they're doing well. And, and, and basically the Milwaukee public market transformed the third ward and now it's got nice restaurants in it. Uh, it's 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 just a it's the place to be now in that city. You've got the Newbow Market in Cedar Rapids. Uh, you've got the uh, Oxbow Market in Napa. We've got all kinds of examples of these sort of public market concepts that have done well, and and I want to see those replicated around the country, but specifically focused on regional regional supplies. Build your local regional food systems around your watersheds, you know, uh, you know, like the Arkansas Valley, uh, which is a beautiful fertile valley, but although a lot of the water's being diverted away for 
for the growth of Colorado Springs and, and other urban centers. It, it, you know, yeah. but, but there's there's possibilities in these places where we used to grow good food and and basically we sold the water off and they're you know they're growing tumbleweeds now. Uh, but we've got to we got to revive that because honestly, yeah. I don't, I'm not sure how we're going to feed ourselves when the Ogallala Aquifer runs dry. I, yeah, I with all the supply chain issues coming up and the price of fuel and fertilizer and you know and Roundup and everything. I'm not sure we'll have to worry about the Ogallala running dry. I, yeah. I, I, I think right now looking at, you know, being in fall of 2021, I think like the best advice that, that anybody could hear would be plant a garden for next year. Like right now is the time to plan your garden for next year, because you've got the next go four or five months to watch how the world unfolds and, and, and watch and see if these complex supply chains can be self-repairing or it's going to be, or it's going to lead to cascading failures. I mean, I kind of know which way I'm leaning, but uh, I, I wanted to circle back, you know, you're talking about meat packing plants and I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, you know, and, and over the course of this conversation, we've charted how, um, you know, the meat packing plants went from some of the urban centers out to these, you know, really far rural areas. And we can only have these concentrated uh, meat cutting operations that exploit labor, you know, that take unskilled labor, pay them pennies in a marginally safe and healthy working environment, you know, <laughs> and, and we put all these people in there and, you know, you couldn't have, you couldn't have a community like that somewhere like in Chicago and not be noticed, but in garden city, it just kind of grows and, and people think, well, you know, that's what it is. And when we see the growth of garden city, which is, I think that, uh, there's 20,000 people back in the mid seventies. Is that right, Mike? And it's, yeah, I'd have to, you know, 40, it's in that article that, uh, that we, that came out this last week. Uh, and, and it's like 40,000 now, you know, 40, 40,000 yeah, exploded. And, but at what cost, you know, you talked about all the meatpacking plants west of there to Pueblo that are now gone since the mega plant at, uh, at, at Holcomb got built. I think all the ones east because, you know, I'm east of there yep. and I drive past that stupid thing when I go to Colorado every once in a while. There are a meat plant left out here. I That's mean, right. I can go east from here and find a few like there's Attica and Anthony are within an hour, but going west, there's nothing. See, and that, that's the death march war of attrition that the street journal was talking about is when IBP did that. And he did it right in the face of the Packers and Stockyards Act. He did it. They, they did it right in the face of us knowing very likely what, what would happen. They had congressional hearings about it and nothing was done. Kind of like this last congressional hearing we had that thought a contract uh, library would be a good idea. I mean, they completely sold us out. Uh, David Scott, the, the chair of that, of that House Ag Committee, uh, come on, come on, Chair, Chairman Scott, you can do better than that. He didn't sell us out, Mike. Trying to protect his chicken his chicken integrators in, in his state. But, but my goodness, that, that was sad. With, with, and to open it up with the Texas A&M book, you know, with, with, all of the, with all of the economists that, are, that ask permission to, to say anything from a meat packer before they do. Economists, cattle facts, that you got to wonder where they get their information from and who's spinning stuff for them. So well, they make it up. <laughs> they just make it up. 
I, I mean, you, you, you know, it's, it's like that land grant economist that's getting, you know, funded by, you know, whoever it may be, big ag. I mean, they basically design the, the study to guarantee the outcome. And, and they had to reach pretty deep on this Texas A&M thing to go back to a, to a different time frame, totally irrelevant to the one we're in now. And, and they based all that, those outcomes based on, you know, irrelevant uh, previous, uh, you know, I, I hate saying the word, but it, it you know, a marketplace that, that wasn't, that, that wasn't even relevant. What uh, word, Mike? The audio reason I out. hate to say the word market is because it isn't one that exists. It's a price. It's the price that they've conditioned us to accept. I can't help but wonder, you know, here we are in the middle of 2021, woke culture. And, you know, there's this, what's, what's going to happen when we find, when they, when that, when that group of people finds out about what really goes on in a meatpacking plant and how exploited some of this, some of this, possibly undocumented immigrant labor forces being exploited. Like you got to wonder if are the meat, you think the meat packers are aware of that? You think they're, they're worried about it. Is that why they're investing in fake meat? You know, you know, Brian, we've told this story. I mean, look at the meat racket that Chris Leonard wrote fast food nation. I mean, Eric Slosser, you know, he talks about Kenny at the, at the Greeley plant, the ConAgra plant in Greeley and how abused he was. And, and of course you go back to the jungle of Upton Sinclair. And I would argue that it's worse now than it was then. They just don't care. I, I just don't think people care. And, and then we come in through COVID and, and, and the way we've stacked people shoulder to shoulder in these plants and made them ride, you know, 10 to a car and sleep seven families to a trailer house I mean, and then David Scott, uh, Chairman Scott, Ag Committee Chairman, holds a hearing and doesn't even find anything wrong. Everything seems to be okay. All we need is a contract library. I mean, I mean, Senator Booker has got a way better plan for going forward than any of the than any of, of anybody else I've heard from, and yet we're discounting him. We don't even want to talk about it because he's thinking. You know, these outfits have to be a lot smaller. Well, I can't, I, I certainly agree with that. Well, let, let's give them a little attention. I mean, okay, we're going to talk, let's talk a little bit about Corey Booker and and his buddy Elizabeth Warren's plan and what they want to do with CAFOs and tell me why you support it. Well, you know, you, you ask for more than you're going to get. <laughs> uh, Booker, you know, Booker's saying, well, we, you know, we want to limit a CAFO to, to a thousand head. Well, you know what it does is it now becomes a family operation. Uh, but in order to, you know, let a family make a living on a thousand head, they better have a market. And, and so, you know, he's got a, he's, he, I think he's got a pretty good plan for that too, because he wants to break up the big packers. The heck with this idea that we're going to make them behave. You're not, you, they're too concentrated. You got to break them up. I am with Booker. I would love to feed a thousand cattle and, and be able to make a living doing it. You know, and, and if I needed more, I could buy some from a neighbor, you know, for my for my slaughter facility. But, you know, you're not you're not going to have a thousand animals. I mean, obviously, that's not going to happen. What I'd like to see is eighty seven thousand of those feedlots that we lost come back to back in business. If that happened, you'd see a big movement back to rural America again. 
uh, we would be, I mean, one of the biggest problems in the urban centers is, is just too many people. There's too many people coming at them, you know, because they've lost their opportunities due to concentrated power, monopoly power. They've lost their opportunities, independent business people. Let's create that environment where an independent businessman, whether he's a butcher or a baker, a cheesemaker, you know, a dairy farmer, a, a cattle producer or feeder, whatever, can make a living again. And all we got to do is, is, is increase the, in, the percentage income at the farm and ranch gate of what a consumer spends. You know, we talk about regenerative agriculture. You're not going to have regenerative agriculture unless you increase the income to the guy that's the steward of the land. You can't afford to be a good steward of the land if you don't, if you're, if you're talking to a bankruptcy attorney. That simply doesn't work. And I, and I love John Eichard. Uh, you know, I was, I was up to John Eichard's place at Fairfield. It's been several years ago. And he had a conference there, kind of a gathering uh, of, there in Fairfield. And I got invited and, 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 you know, he goes way back. I mean, John's 84, five years old now, but, but is probably knows more than anybody in, in, in the, in the economics profession than, than anyone else that I know of. And because he's got the history and he, and he, you know, he's one of those guys that like me thought industrial agriculture was the way we were going to feed the world. And I only realized later that, okay, that was wrong. Uh, this isn't, it, it's not sustainable. And so John loves the word sustainable. Well, we lost that word. How many years ago did we lose sustainable? Now we're, now we're losing regenerative, but we lost family farm. We lost humane. We lost hormone antibiotic free. We lost all that stuff. You always lose it because the big guys co-opt the words. And so I go to John that, and, and I say, Hey, John, I really like this word regenerative. So, you know, like it was seven or eight, maybe longer years ago. And he says, Mike, yeah, that sounds great. But is it sustainable? And he got me, he got me, he made me think, yeah, you're right. We can do all these great things with soil carbon and rotational grazing and all this management stuff that we can do around, around soil and, and, and so forth. But is it sustainable? The only way it is sustainable is if we increase income at the farm and ranch gate and give that farmer a bigger percent than 14 cents out of the food dollar. You have to do that. And that's why I like Cory Booker's bill. Cory Booker is a champion for independent family farm agriculture and ranching. So what's bad in it? I think he could be a stronger advocate if he, if he was a man. Okay, yeah. Because he'd have a higher energy level. Well, because my impression, Mike. But I love him. I love, I love yeah. Cory Booker and what he's done to stand up for the independent. My, I guess my impression was he's anti. He's no, he is not. He believes animals should be treated humanely. So, don't okay. you? I certainly do. I know Brian does. I mean, those cattle that I see well, behind yeah. you there, Brian, yeah. are not hungry. No, and that's actually a fairly recent picture. That that's cattle heaven uh, behind you, and and this is that's all we want is is humane treatment of livestock. Yeah. I mean. It took, it took animal science. You know, I got a degree in animal science from Colorado State University, and I tell people, don't confuse that with animal husbandry. It took animal science to put that sow in a, in a two-by-seven crate. Mm -hmm. It took animal science to put that laying hen in a battery cage. 
It took animal science to put 130,000 head of cattle in one feedlot in Yuma, Colorado. What kind of animal welfare is gonna happen the third day of the blizzard in Yuma, Colorado when no one has been to work yet? And you've got 130,000 head that want fed. I don't know, not very good. What kind of animal welfare do you have when you load a fat steer in South Dakota and truck it five to 600 miles to a slaughterhouse because there's all, they're all broke and went out of business and, and you gotta go to Garden City from South Dakota or wherever. How humane is that? It's not, it's not humane. They shouldn't, no animal should have to travel that far, especially when they weigh 1400 pounds. That's just not right. Now, and, and so when Cory Booker's talking about smaller is better, heck he's right, but you gotta give us the market. You gotta build the infrastructure so those animals, like in my place, they don't ever get on a truck. They walk over to the slaughter unit and only the carcass makes the trip to Saint, to Colorado Springs. Now tell me who's more efficient. It's hard to argue with. I mean, I- The slaughter waste remain behind. It's turned into compost and goes back on the soil. Now tell me who's more efficient. We use between 30 and 50 gallons of animal per animal process. This is on cattle, 30 to 50 gallons of water to process an animal. The big packers are using over 700. Who's more efficient? You know, we pay our workers a living income. Tyson and boys don't. They live seven families to a trailer house in Garden City, Kansas. You know, who's Who's more efficient? And, and all I would argue is that they are efficient. They're very efficient at extracting wealth and getting government subsidies to pay for, to make their grain and, and their inputs cheaper. And, you know. So one, one thing I've been asking guests lately is, you know, we, 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 we throw around the term regenerative all the time. Like we say it probably a dozen times a podcast. So how does Mike Calicrate define regenerative agriculture? Well, I, I define it as it, it's a healing process from the from what the industrial model has done. And so I when I when I chart out a picture of what I think regenerative is, it's soil to soil. And so I've got soil that produces livestock. It produces feed for livestock. And, and, and that feed then is fed to those livestock or they consume it in, in a grazing program that's well managed. Uh, so we're rotating our, our animals every day, essentially. And, and it, you know, of course, it's going to take it's going to take more labor to get that job done. And then those animals are slaughtered for my regenerative purposes. Those animals are slaughtered right on site. And, and so the carcass travels to Colorado Springs. The slaughter waste remains behind. It's composted in with our manure. And then that manure then goes back on the land. So we, we're, everything that's produced on that farm. And that, and that ranch is consumed by the livestock. We sell no grain at all. Uh, we sell no hay. We, we buy some, but we don't sell any. Everything goes through livestock. So I've only got one thing to worry about. What's the price of the meat that I'm selling? And, and so I've got the income now to support a more regenerative type of, of an approach. But what other things can we do when you think about, you know, the Packers think they own the word efficiency, which is a lie. But what else could we do? Well, what are you doing with those bones? What are you doing with the skull? What are you doing with the feet? At least until you get your boiler in where you can, you can get the hair off and sell beef feet. What are you doing with those? Well, why don't we make bone char? 
why don't we cook those bones and turn them into equal parts, calcium, phosphorus, and carbon, and put that in with our, with our compost. So now we've got that calcium, we've got the phosphorus, we got the carbon going back onto the land. What if, what if we fed biochar, not the bone char, but the biochar from wood mass or any biomass, what if we fed that to our cows uh, out on pasture? Put it in the mineral. Maybe you put it in a, you know, a little feed mix so that can maybe you'll eat a couple pounds of it a day of, of the feed mix. What happens when they, when that biochar goes through the rumen? Well, first of all, they got a healthier rumen. And of course you're feeding the cattle that are in the feedlot biochar along with you know, the other feed that is produced on the place. And so the manure now has fully activated, fully charged, uh, you know, biochar in the manure. So it goes back on the land as fertilizer. But on the pastures, when the cows are, are you know, when the manure from the cows hits the ground, the, the dung beetles show up. And the dung beetles show up because you haven't killed them all with a damn stupid insecticide program, which makes it more regenerative. And so now the dung beetles are burying that manure along with that biochar as much as 18 inches into the soil. And so now what happens when it rains? You got, all these, you got all these holes in your pasture, right? Looks like you've stuck a pencil in the ground everywhere you go. If you've got a good population of those, of those dung beetles, now you got better infiltration rates. You know, and, and we didn't have to do a key line uh, process to make that happen. We did it through dung beetle action and through rotational grazing. And, and, and so, you know, to me, we always need to think about enterprises that we can stack that, that help us to become more profitable so that we can become more regenerative. I mean, regenerative might be building a mile of fence every year. Uh, you know, a new, a, a mile of new fence every year. And I mean, look at the shape fences are in in ranch country. You can tell they've been under pressure. They can't even, they can't even put up a wire, let alone a new post. And, and so it, it, you've got to be profitable to be regenerative. And for me to be profitable, I have to sell meat. I cannot be regenerative selling livestock because Everything we're producing on these ranches today, I don't care whose program you're following, we're selling below the real cost of production. I think you're absolutely right. So can we talk about the bander for a while? Sure. So controversially, I know I know I've taken the stance in the past that I mean, you know, you can see you can see behind me all my beautiful cows with their beautiful horns. <laughs> I've taken the stance in the past that, you know, I carry a weapon and I believe my cow should be able to carry weapons too. And, you know, I am a man and I should not take away, you know, a, a God given weapon from an animal. That being said, they can be mighty inconvenient to get down the chute to do anything with like put ear tags in or put a brand on or preg check. So I'm thinking about maybe maybe banding some of the horns off of some of my ones that aren't quite as pretty as the ones that are up front here in the picture. Um, and I've also got some six to eight month old, uh, old calves that I got a band. So talk, talk to me about banders. What, uh, what do I need to know and some tips and tricks? 
Well, Brian, I, it, it was 1991 that I got a load of bulls in out of Oklahoma that I had agreed to let the buyer ban. He was all excited about this bander that was coming out of Montana. And, and I said, well, hey, let's give it a shot. Well, you know, we can buy these bulls, you know, 10 or $15 back and turn them into steers and let's give it a shot. And so he sent them to me and, and boy, that, that, that might've been as big a wreck as I've ever had. Uh, they were all swelled up. The, you know, it was, the, the band didn't get tight enough is what the problem was. And, and so I had a veterinarian at the time and, and, and he went through hell fixing that problem. And it took, it took a lot of surgery, but we did get it fixed. I don't know as we even lost any, but it was, it was, CK, it was as inhumane a thing as I've ever seen. I mean, these animals were You got that $15. They were, they were hurting big time. I was going to say, you had to have the vet involved in that many of them. You probably didn't make money. In fact, it took two veterinarians to get the job done. It was that big a job. Uh And so so I told, I told my vets, I said, look, uh, that'll never happen again. I promise you. And one of them said, no, Mike, the concept is good to ligate that body part and, and shut the blood supply off and let it just dry up and fall off. That's, that's, that makes sense. And, 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 and so I said, okay, what's wrong with the bander? Well, it runs out of stroke. It doesn't get tight enough. The rubber they're using is inferior. It's got too many sharp edges and it brazes and, and then the clip won't hold. And so I just invented a new one, a different one. I developed a better one. And that was, that was when the, that's how the Calicrate bander started. And it's evolved over the years. It, that was in 1991, and it's evolved over the years. And 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 it's really the it's a it's a leading method of of, of non-surgical, bloodless, drug-free uh, way to castrate. It, it's the most humane yep. way I yep. know of to castrate. And the uh, animal doesn't feel any pain. Well, it, it it really is all about tension. If you can get it tight enough to shut the blood supply off, just go one notch tighter and impact the nerve to where now they don't feel it. And where we really learned a lot about that, what we call compression analgesic, is mm-hmm. with removal of red deer and elk uh, antlers for, for uh, velvet antler, uh, which sells around the world for, for supplements and so forth. And, and so we were working with some, a group of veterinarians out of, out of, uh, uh, out of uh, New, New Zealand. In fact, they were the equivalent of the USDA in New Zealand. And, and the red deer velvet is, and red deer meat is a big deal in New Zealand. And so they were using the calicrate bander and, and putting that rubber around the pedicle, the base of the, just below the pedicle. And that's and, the hair, right? The hair at the base of the horn. Yeah, and there, it's that little ridge of, of ossified, ossified bone. Uh, so it can still grow back, it, right? It's just right at the base of the antler and above the hair. And, and so what they do is they, they'd go in there and they put that band below the pedicle and they crank that thing up to like a hundred and some pounds pressure. And what they figured out is, and they, very, they measured various tensions but the but they they sat they settled on a certain amount of pressure that when you put the saw to the to the antler you didn't even get eye movement there was no body movement there was no convulsing there was nothing that, i mean didn't even get eye movement and but, and if you put the saw to the antler without anything 
I mean, hell, they break their legs. I mean, they would just, it was, it was the, the most horrendous pain ever. And so anyway, we learned about this, this concept of, of compression analgesic. And so what we did then is we developed a tension indicator on our bander that gets the right tension. So it doesn't matter how big the bowl is or how small it is, it gets the right tension. And so now we've, now you just don't get the complications with the thing, but that, that's just how it evolved. And then one day I get a phone call from a veterinarian, a consulting veterinarian in the Texas panhandle was calling on the big feed yards down there. And they were getting a lot of Mexican animal cattle in with big horns. And, and they, you know, you know how the bunk management goes with those big horns. Now, instead of nine inches per animal, because uh, they're taking turns at the bunk. They need three feet or four feet. Well, now it's six feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's six feet per animal. And so, and of course, the meat packer, there's no way they wanted those animals with horns because you couldn't get them in the kill box uh, and, and do a, a, a humane kill on them. So that was a real problem. And so anyway, the, the veterinarian in the, in, in, in the feedlot down there, just, heck, he just put a band on. But again, he put the band down on the hairline on the hair, you know, kind of like the elk, it's below the pedicle. Uh, and, 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 and by the way, on that elk, once you remove that, that antler, then you cut off the, the, the band and then they grow back another antler next time. See, so you didn't, you didn't limit. Oh, the other thing is if that animal did not experience pain when that antler was removed, they were a lot easier to handle to get in the next time. Yeah, because they don't have that memory. Yeah, they they didn't forget. And so anyway, they started taking horns off of these. I mean, my goodness, they got two and three inch bases on those horns. And and so they put the calicrate bander on that horn and they learned that, well, you got to get you got to get it right down on the hair in the soft tissue. And then it might take 60 days for it to eventually heal up and, and heal over. But it was amazing. The pictures he sent me. Uh, you'd, you'd see these big antlers like that, bigger than the cow that's behind you in your picture. Uh, uh, but mm. but that's it was just a smooth head. It was it was all healed up, 100% healed up. And hey. what and what these feedlots got to doing is they were buying a lot of those horn cattle, and they were they were some of the best performers at the IBP plant as far as carcass uh, quality. And so they were buying highly discounted animals. They were getting a really good price. Well, it didn't take, it it took a few years, but IBP finally figured out what was going on. And, and they actually were, they were missing some of these because they were hard bones. They were, they were over thirties. They started Mm. discounting them a little bit, but still our bander is, is used widely uh, in for, for, for uh, horn removal. Uh, And, and if honestly, if if you're, if you got calves, a, a little paste goes a long way. I, I'd yeah. rather do that, but, but if once you've got the big yeah. horn and you want to get rid of that horn, our bander works for that in a, in a very humane way. And I, I remember I was at the Kansas Cattlemen's Gathering one year and, and Temple Grandin was coming in to speak. And, and so somebody from KCA uh, went to Wichita Airport to pick Temple up and, and we're going to take her to the, to the meeting, the Kansas Cattlemen's meeting. Don't confuse that with the Kansas Livestock Association. The Kansas Cattlemen's meeting. I will never confuse those two. <laughs> and so en route, this person was talking about the Calicrate Bander to Temple Grandin. And of course, she already knew about the Bander. I mean, she was involved in, in the whole development of it. 
and and because you know we're all about humane treatment. And this guy said, "Well, I found out a better uh, or a new use for that banner." He says, "I'm removing horns now," and so she couldn't do anything but talk about horn removal from for a while after that. I mean, it, she thought that was a pretty darn good deal. And and if you ask Temple Grandin, what is the most inhumane thing we can do to an animal? I've gotten two different answers from her. One is the green elastrator ring that doesn't get tight enough. Oh, Cats yeah. go out and they flip and they flop and, and you hope they go over the hill and you don't have to watch them, but watch that mother's bag get tight. That calf doesn't suck. It's in pain. And why do we want to incur pain on a young animal that's trying to develop an immune system? We don't, we want to limit the amount of stress they, they incur. And so the little, little green lacerator ring is a huge, huge problem and bigger because it's, it's used so widely. But the other thing that I think bothers Temple a lot is, is horn removal, especially these bigger horns. That, that's really hard on an animal. And so anything we can do to, to improve humane treatment, that, that's really what the Calicrate Bander is all about. It's the other thing about the, about the Bander is if you'll leave those testicles on in, in delay castration, we don't castrate anything before you know, 750, 800 pounds. And by then you've got an extra 15% weight gain. You've got a more muscular brain, your animal (coughs) that then we can go ahead and finish out in the next 120 days to a, to a, you know, beautiful, you know, carcass, uh, in a, you probably get more boys that look like boys. Yeah, they do. You know, but you don't want to go that long. You don't, you, you don't want them, you know, exhibiting a lot of those, those bull characteristics. You've waited too long if you do. But the other thing is the purebred breeders leave those animals bulls and what they, in hopes they're going to sell a breeding stock, mm-hmm. but what they don't sell, they might be, you know, 15 months old, uh, but what they don't, they don't sell, then they're able to band at those heavier weights and, and still get the good fat steer price for the bull. Yeah. So I, I've had several people tell me that they've tried to band off horns and I'm not sure if they've tried to use a calicrate bander or another product, but I've, I've been told that the, the trick is to get that band right down there, just, just below the hairline. Like you want it on the hair, just below the base of the horn. Is that correct? Yeah. And you want the, you, the clip portion up between the, you know, on top okay. uh, and, and maybe just a bit forward. And then what we like to do is duct tape it. So that they don't go to go over to the fence and just rub it off. Rub it off. Yeah. yeah. So we the just band we on just, it, and you duct tape around it. Yeah, just just cover it with a with with a little bit of duct tape, and and that'll that'll keep it that'll keep them from rubbing them off. Uh, and then and then that that's that's it. It's fast. It's easy. It takes one loop per side, and and you're you know you're done. But it, it it's it's one of the main uses. Uh, castration, of course, is by far the biggest use of the calicrate bander. And the other cool thing is, is that anybody can use it. And, and you, and, and it, you got an indicator that tells you when it's tight enough. So it's not anybody. Yeah. It's, it's going to, it's You're going to nail it. And, and, and we've just got the tool to where it just works. I don't know if you, one of our biggest fans is George Chambers from uh, Georgia. And I think his testimonial is still up on our website. He said 5,000 head, no complications. You know, and, and I'm, I just appreciate George for, for sharing that because it, it was kind of one of those 
how many hamburgers is the McDonald's sold? Remember years ago, they used to put it on their sign. And yeah, they updated every once in a while. And, you know, 500 head and no complications. And then, you know, years later, it's 5,000 head and no complications. So, yeah, it was fun to watch that. But, yeah, that banner sells in 23 countries around the world. It uh, employs around 50 people in the St. Francis, Kansas community. Everything's made in St. Oh. Francis. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, if, you, if you've got 50 working at the Bander, how many do you have at Ranch Foods Direct? We've got it. We've got 30 people uh, in Colorado Springs uh, that that work uh, at at Ranch Foods Direct, uh, from meat cutters to retail staff. So you're you're about 80 people. So you're under the uh, the presidential suggestion that every employer with over 100 employees mandate uh, vaccinations, huh? You know what? I, I'm going to be really close when you add in my 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 feedlot uh, cattle. Yeah. <laughs> so the next question is: Is are you going to going to give people the choice, or are you going to force them? I am not going to. I am not going to mandate the vaccine. I, I, I figured that was probably a pretty stupid. Question. I'm not going to do it. Uh, but you know, as cattle producers and livestock producers, we know we know the importance of vaccinations. We know the vaccines work. You know, we, if you're going to use our bander, we highly recommend that you use a tetanus vaccine, like the vaccinate, mm-hmm. the black leg tetanus combination, because, you know, it, it can be bad, uh, you know, if, if, if they get tetanus. And, and we know these vaccines work. So, you know, myself personally, I was one of the first guys to get vaccinated. And, and I've, I've had my boost, not my, I had my regular vaccination and, and I'm, I'm set up for a booster shot on the, you know, in November. So I believe in the vaccinations, uh, but I am not going to mandate that our employees uh, get get vaccinated. So far, we've been in great shape. Uh, we we have good social distancing in our plant. We don't have anybody standing shoulder to shoulder. Uh, it, you know, we've been lucky. We've been we've been really lucky. We haven't we haven't completely avoided it, but yeah, we haven't not had a bad outcome yet. Are you having trouble finding workers right now, like everybody else, or are you pretty good? Absolutely, it's it's very difficult to find skilled meat cutters, and so one of the things, you know, I'm speaking to you tonight from Great Falls, Montana, just the night before the Montana Farmers Union annual meeting, and we sold our mobile slaughter unit to the Montana group up here, and and the purpose of that is going to be to train butchers and slaughter people. The Northern Montana College, which is under the MSU, the Montana State University system, are going to develop a curriculum to teach butchering and, and meat cutting. We want to develop the skills again, and we want to develop, you know, just that whole tradesman sort of apprentice through master type model again that the big meat packers destroyed and, and the big retailers destroyed. And, and we have some old time meat cutters that work with Ranch Foods Direct in Colorado Springs. One is 74 and the other one is 81. And these are the real deal. These guys know how to break carcasses down. And, and so they have taught a bunch of young people how to, how, to, how to break down carcasses. So that's our crew that we have. And then every now and then one of them will leave and open up a meat market like, like uh, 
Drew Hicks did in, in Great Falls, right here, the central meat market in Great Falls. Drew learned how to cut meat at Ranch Foods Direct. And, and we've got Max Vivedo that graduated from Colorado College with a super high expensive, you know, bachelor's degree. And uh, all he wants to do is meet a meat cutter. Not all he wants to do, it's, it's awesome. I mean, we taught him how to cut meat and then he went to Europe to learn charcuterie. I mean, it is such a, it's a wonderful profession. And I, I remember when I was working in the grocery store as a kid in where we talked about, we, we broke carcasses down uh, for the meat market there. The guy that, that ran the meat market, you know, I was 16 years old and I, and I just got my driver's license. Manager of the meat market just comes up to me, pitches me a set of keys. It's the keys to his brand new four-wheel drive Ford pickup. It's, it's a, one of those tall ones, you know? And I look at him like, you must be crazy. I just got my license. You're not going to let me drive your new pickup. And he did. He, he almost made, had to make me get in it. And I drove it down to Kittredge, three miles down the canyon and back again to the store. And I got out and I was just unbelievable. It smelled like a new pickup. And it, I just, you know, I couldn't believe you let me do that. But the point I'm making is the meat market manager was able to buy a new pickup. And he lived in a house that he owned. Now, how, what can we say about IBP's workers? How many of those guys are driving new vehicles and living in a house that they own? Well, seven of them might be living in a house that they rent. <laughs> no, it's, no, they rent that trailer house. I, yeah. yeah. I have friends who live, they're managers at, at feedlots and packers. And I'll go out to eat with them. And they're so worried about a $12 burger or, you know, they, they can't make rent. And it's really sad that they're these managers and these very successful corporations but they are not successful. And that makes me so angry. We have a fast food model in Colorado Springs called Drifter's Hamburgers. Models, mm -hmm. they serve our beef. And they use a, a wheat Montana bun. And, you know, it's everything. The food there is crazy good. And it's based on this kind of in and out burger type concept. But the yeah. is very competitive. They're going to be the, you know, basically the same price relatively compared to In-N-Out, which is new now to our area. But Drifters has the best hamburger by far. And what I think, what, what, what is really important to know about Drifters is, is their workers are paid a fair wage. In fact, I was there last Friday and, and we were just talking about much of what we're talking about right now about, about labor and treating workers fairly. Every person in the kitchen in that hamburger fast food hamburger place. Every single person in the kitchen owned their own home. And the women that were working in the kitchen were single mothers and they owned their own homes. In other words, you don't have to, you don't have to treat people like refugees and cheat out yep. of a fair wage in order to get along. But if you have a chain or a franchise with the corporate level extracting so much wealth. I mean, look at look at the dollars that the that the co-CEOs of, of Chipotle were making a, a few years ago. I mean, they made more money in seven minutes than a worker would make in an entire year. That is what is wrong. We've got too much concentration of power and wealth in the hands of too few that are paying themselves very, very well at the 
expense of everyone else. That's nail on the head as usual, Mike. We're closing in on two hours and I think this is probably a great place to end. So where can we find you at? Like what's your blog address? Facebook, ranchersdirect.com, anything, any other uh, links you want yeah, me to go, go to mikecalicrate.com and you will find my blog there. It's the lower left button. But what I want you to do is, is go to that blog and look up a couple of keywords like mafia and read the history of that IVP story that I told you about, about working with the mafia and, 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 and look up that governor's conference uh, that I talked about, the South Dakota Governor's Conference, and listen, you can listen to all of it, but in particular, I want you to listen to Bill Heffernan's, Professor Heffernan, he's a sociologist out of Missouri, listen to his presentation, but then it's really important to listen to what he has to say on the panel as well. That is so significant. And anybody that's trying to build it, that has an idea to build a new plant, and I would have been right with you years ago before I, you know, learned what I know now, uh, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. IBP wasn't even big enough. You know, and I think about IBP not being big enough, you know, how about in the beer business? How about New Belgium in Fort Collins, Colorado, an employee-owned brewery that expanded to Asheville, North Carolina? Unbelievable business in great beer. They were literally forced to sell. They they could, get, are they Coors now? Yeah, they were. Yeah, they no, they they weren't bought by an InBev or South African. That that merger that occurred, they weren't bought by. They oh. were bought by one of the top five or whatever brewers in the world. But but they could not compete in that conglomerate market in in that you know multinational you know brewing type environment. They couldn't do it, and so it was in the workers' best interests to sell. But wouldn't it have been better? to become that regional butcher or that regional brewer? Yes. Had they stayed in Fort Collins and just focused strictly on the Colorado market, maybe Cheyenne, Wyoming a little bit, but in their region, I think it would have been better. But the other thing that, that killed the brewers is when Hickenlooper, Senator, now Senator Hickenlooper, when he was governor, signed a bill giving the big box stores the ability to sell high percentage liquor and beer. That was death. That was death to the craft brewer. And, and, and so that all fed into it as well. But this is all very, very relative to what's going on in the beef industry. So we need to develop our own pathways to the consumer that are safe and separate of what exists today. And that's all we, better future that we can all really hope for. Yep, yep, yep. Oh. CK, did we forget anything today? No, I was just going to say, now I'm not going to complain when I go to a grocery store and they don't sell beer or liquor. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate the time you've uh, you've given us this evening and uh, hope you have a good day tomorrow up there in Montana. All right. Well, thanks for the opportunity, yes. guys. Always a pleasure. Good to see you. Bye. Bye, everybody. <laughs>